Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Nation. All right, let's welcome to the Misfit Nation podcast, Scott Deluzio, author of Surviving Son, host of Drive On Podcast, and uh, Army veteran. What else do you do, Scott? I mean, you have everything in the books here. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on the uh, show. Um, like you said, I, I'm an Army veteran. I served in Afghanistan in 2010. Um, wrote the book Surviving Son based on my experiences in Afghanistan, uh, what what took place there. And afterwards, uh, you know, after coming back home and the struggles I, I dealt with uh, after that. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the struggles are, are things that you kind of expect of a, uh, you know, person coming back home. But mine, mine in some circumstances were, were kind of unique. Um, so I, I wrote about that, um, started the podcast, drive on podcast a couple of years ago, uh, when I started noticing, you know, all the issues that, that the veterans were, were having after, after coming back home and, and realizing that I wasn't the only one who was struggling with, with coming back home. And, and so I wanted to have a platform where, where we could talk to other veterans about what they've gone through, what, what's worked for them, what didn't work for them, uh, and, and provide resources to, to help out the veterans and let them know that they're, they're not alone in their struggle and that there are options out there for them uh, that, that can help them out. Awesome. Uh, tell us a little about your call to service. Uh, you joined, you were in Connecticut National Guard or Vermont National Guard. I'm not sure there's two different listings on your thing, but I think your brother yeah. was Vermont National Guard. You were in Connecticut. That, that's correct. Yeah. So, okay. so my, my brother and I, we were both raised in a very patriotic family. And so growing up, we, we looked up and respected the, the military and law enforcement, first responders, all the, all those kind of people. So uh, that, that was us growing up. And then, you know, nine 11 happened. And I think like a lot of other Americans, we were pretty pissed off at, at what had happened. My brother was still in high school at the time I was in college and I had considered just dropping out of school right then and there and just joining the military because I, I knew there was going to be some sort of military response. And I, I wanted to be a part of it. Um, I, I slept on that decision. I decided that I, uh, I'd finish what I started with college. If there was going to be some sort of military response, it probably wasn't going to be a, a quick in and out like desert storm was, uh, it was probably going to be something that took place over a longer period of time. And, and it would likely be something I, that would still be a, around after I got out of college. So, uh, so that's what I did. Um, my brother, young brother joined the Vermont army national guard when he started going to college up there. 
and he he met a guy who was in the the national guard and talked to him about it It sounded like something interesting that he would want to do and so he joined first and like pretty much overnight he became one of those guys that we looked up to growing up you know (laughs) and you know all all my life growing up he's he's a little brother right and then you know i'm supposed to be the one that he's looking up to and and now all of a sudden i'm looking up to him which was which was great i was extremely proud of him i i I thought it was an incredibly uh you know selfless thing that he did by by joining the, the military uh the way he did um and then about a year after he joined, I started hearing these reports in the news that the, the military was struggling to meet their recruiting numbers. And that started to piss me off. I was like, what, what happened to all those people? 9-11 wasn't that long ago. What happened to all those people who were ready to you know, go kick some ass after, after 9-11? And, and then I, I had a realization that I'm one of those people and I still haven't done anything. I, I still haven't served. I, I haven't signed up for anything I, I didn't do anything you know other than graduate college and you know like who cares like that that's not really um you know the the service that i was i was looking for here and so i said you know what that that's that's it i'm, I'm done making excuses i have no no reason not to join i'm young enough i'm fit enough i'm perfectly capable to join and so so that's that's what got me to to join uh you know that and you know my if my little brother can do it, then there's no way I'm going to let him one up. Yeah, let that happen. <laughs> no way, no way. So, um, so yeah, that, that that's kind of like the the call to service where where that that came from and how I I got into uh, the military. Did you both join infantry or you infantry him uh, support? Yeah, no, he was he was infantry. He went infantry first, and uh, and again, I, I wasn't going to let him one up for on that. So I so I had to do that too. Awesome. <laughs> both eleven bravos. Yep. Yep. All right. Awesome. Uh, so where were you in, where were you in Afghanistan in 2010? Yeah. So we were both in Eastern Afghanistan. Um, he was in a province called Pektia province and I was in, uh, Nangahar province in an area called Torkum right along the Pakistan border. And, uh, that was, uh, for people familiar with the, the region that's near where the Khyber Pass is. Um, and, uh, it was a, major border crossing between Pakistan and Afghanistan and where a lot of the NATO supplies would come through uh, because a lot of people don't realize it, but Afghanistan being a landlocked country, a lot of our supplies were coming through on cargo ships and, and the closest port was in Pakistan. So they would offload the the, uh, the ships in Pakistan <laughs> and then drive the the shipping containers into Afghanistan from, from there on, on the back of trucks and stuff. So, um, so we secured that that border area made sure that the the trucks had passage safe passage into the country and and were able to get to where they needed to go that was our kind of our primary mission while while we were there uh, we also did other uh missions where we would we would do some um uh patrols around the the local villages and and stuff to to kind of get to know the the area know know the people who were there um but but yeah so that that's we're essentially in that that area uh for the majority of the deployment we did do some um, some missions where we we flew out to other villages that were a little bit more remote than than where we were. There was no roads or anything, and, and it would have taken probably weeks to walk to these villages. So we, we flew out on, on helicopters and, and made made our lives a little bit easier. Not not to say that it was an easy job, but it it, it was uh, much easier than having to walk all that way. 
There's a lot of lovely places in Afghanistan where walking to them is not fun at all. And uh, no. I, I applaud the, your command to command's use of helicopters or lift surfaces to get you to places a lot easier than walking or even driving the treacherous roads there at that time. Uh, I, got yeah, to, I, mean, I got to Afghanistan about a month after uh, in September of 2010, I got there. So okay. six, 60 days back from Korea, I went right to Afghanistan and right. two different worlds. It was kind of kind of crazy going from Korea Fort Campbell, 60 days into Afghanistan. And then, hey, wow, welcome to this. This is your new life. Have at yeah. it. So, so yeah, we're, that, that we're is, there about the same is, time. That is crazy, yeah, to to think that you're you have such a little downtime in between, and then then all of a sudden, boom, you're you're in country. And <laughs> right. and, and you're right, there, there's some places you definitely don't want to be walking in that, in that oh. country. So yeah. oh, believe, uh, I believe you, yeah, especially on the eastern side. Uh, I went back to the eastern side in 2012. I came back 11, back less than a year, and went back as an advisor to Kunar, just north of where you were. And uh, it's, it was treacherous up there. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we, we were very fortunate in our deployment where we, we didn't have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, engagement with the enemy uh, in, in the early part of our deployment. We did have some, you know, attacks on our base and, and things like that, that that took place. But, um, you know, we were very fortunate in our our missions that we were going on that, that we didn't have too many, uh, uh, engagement with the, the enemy, uh, until later on in the, in the deployment, um, where, where we were going on more missions where we were, we were going out specifically looking for specific targets and, and things like that, where we, we started getting involved with a little bit more of that. So. Yeah, that's, uh, I think about that time is when everything ramped up around 2000, right when that, that's this period where everything ramped up to let's go hunting, find them hunt and find yeah. them and get rid of them and you got taken from no your your job is already hard where you were at the twerking gate or kyber pass and then let's go off change that mission set to let's go into the population and try to find the bad guys right yeah so it, it was it was a dual mission and and we had we had a lot uh, going on um we part of part of that mission where we were going out to those villages was also training the afghan army and and getting them up to speed but that was also during uh ramadan where <laughs> they they were they were hard to train as it was um yes. but when when you have a period of time where they don't eat or drink anything during the day and it's 120 plus degrees outside, like they're, they're so hard to get to do anything for more than 15, 20 minutes at a time. So it, it was, it was a very difficult task. And then, uh, then going on a mission and actually have them do the work of, of clearing some of these houses and, and going through the village. It, it was at times almost like herding cats. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great statement right there herding cats that's a perfect way to put it and then even while you're training them it's frowned upon for you to eat or drink in front of them because right. it's respectful so you have to rotate away so they can't see you in order to get stay hydrated to stay nutrition keep your nutrition up that's a, that's a tough portion too a lot of people don't understand that while we're over there yeah exactly and, and shade was very limited so <laughs> where where we were trying to do the training we, we tried to keep it as as comfortable as possible but it was it was very hard to to do so you know it it was it, it was not an easy job uh, to do but um but but we did we did the best with what we had to work with um and and we 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 did go on on some missions that were successful we found some uh you know, weapons and, and stolen Afghan army uniforms and things like that. So we, we got those out and, and took them away from, 
uh, the Taliban where where they could have potentially used them against you know the the Afghan forces and and even against American forces right. to, to trick their way into you know uh, hiding out in, in in these areas. So definitely, it's a definitely a good find and. You even had the Haqqani network up there where you were as well, selling those things that they stole and they'd sell them to other nefarious groups that were in the area to also wreak havoc on you and the Tala and the Afghan army that was in the area. So uh, good right. work finding that stuff and keeping your heads above ground at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the book that, that I wrote, um, you know, talks a lot about the, this type of stuff and the types of missions that we went on and, and, and all, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think it's an important thing to, to have people understand that, uh, you know, like what type of work we were, we were doing over there, because, you know, you, you don't really get a good sense from the, the evening news or, or anything like that. You know, you, you don't get a good sense of, of what actually was going on on the ground over there. Um, and, and so, you know, stories like this one, and, and there's others that, that have been written as well, um, you know, g- give a better picture of what actually was happening. Right. The evening news does look down to see what uh, Sergeant Scott Deluzio is doing on the ground, his team or squad, uh, right. and making a difference on the ground. They look at what's happening in some palace in Kabul or some big building in Kabul where there's people are shaking hands and hugging babies and stuff. They don't care about what we were doing out in the dirt. So uh, for the American people or even everyone in the world that just relies on the news, they need to really open their site aperture and see what exactly uh, all service members did over there and, and continue to do overseas now. Yeah, for sure. And I, I encourage other people who have have served in any capacity, whether they deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, or or stayed stateside, you know, I think it's important for the American public to know what it is that, that we do in the military and, and what what our our day to day is like. And and so, you know, especially if you did serve overseas. Uh, you know what was that like, and and so maybe there were some mistakes made in in the administration of of some of these wars, and you know if we can learn from those those mistakes from the people who were there, um, you know I, I think that's just a, a good thing, and I so I encourage a lot of people to to write down their their experiences and and tell their story, you know. Definitely get it out there, so others don't make the same mistakes because history repeats itself if you don't uh, prepare yourself. For sure, absolutely. So to pivot, I mean, you wrote the book Surviving Son. We obviously know it's a, you lost your brother, Stephen. Where were you at the point? Uh, where were you at the time when this happened? And how did you get notified? Yeah, so, uh, well, it, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit there. And I'll, I'll talk about, you know, what he was up to and what, what his mission was like. And and so his his mission was was another uh, one of those missions where you go into a, a village, uh, suspected Taliban activity. They'd been to, through this this area before. They knew you know, kind of the layout and the capabilities of some of the the people who were there. And they, unfortunately, they walked into an ambush. And, and so he was hit in that ambush. Um, He, he, you know, as the first shots uh, rang out, they, they kind of ran for cover and returned fire, just like you're trained to do. They did everything by the book, like they're supposed to. Uh, But, you know, an enemy, uh, was able to, to shoot and hit him and, and was, it killed him pretty much instantly, uh, which made the, the whole mission change from a, uh, a, a search 
mission where they're they're going and, and looking for the Taliban and and that that type of activity to now a recovery mission where where now they have to recover his his body and bring him out of there because you know as we all know you never leave a fallen soldier behind and and so that's that's what their primary objective was was to to get him out of there uh, unfortunately, in that recovery effort, they lost another American soldier as well, and so that that recovery effort got twice as difficult because now, uh, not only didn't they have the those two fallen soldiers uh, shooting back and directing fire and all that kind of stuff, uh, the people who were carrying them out no longer could could be returning fire as well, and so that that just made it exponentially more difficult for for them because now they had, uh, you know, if they had four people carrying one person that's that's 10 total people who are out of a fight out of a platoon size element that that's a significant number of of uh, people who are no longer uh, in the fight so um, so that that was a, a incredibly difficult time for them to to do and uh, to to do that recovery uh, effort and again I, I write about that in the book as well so you know anyone who wants to learn more about what what took place that that day, uh, you know they can they can check that out. But um, when I found out, um, it was actually kind of a bizarre coincidence. Uh, so I was on on a mission, one of these missions where we flew out to a village, real remote area, and it was actually in like a, a French controlled area of the country. So the, the French uh, military had had a certain portion of of the the country and and so we were operating in that area and at one point during the mission uh, i got a call on the radio saying that that i need to take my squad down to this clearing uh, on the other side of the village and clear an area for a helicopter to land we didn't have any idea who who was coming in or, or whatever um but when when it landed it was an american general and two french soldiers who got off the helicopter and I guess they were just there to kind of check up on what was going on, what we were up to, and what we had found in the area to to gather the intelligence. And as I was the kind of senior ranking guy in that that area where the the uh, the helicopter landed, up until the general stepped off, uh, <laughs> I was the one who was interacting with this general, which was you know as a E five sergeant that that was a little unnerving, you know, talking, <laughs> talking to him. So, um, but I, I did, and, you know, we're, we're talking for a little bit and, and get, giving him kind of like the, the layout of, of what the village was, was like and where we found stuff and everything. And, and uh, he gets a call on the radio saying that two American soldiers were, were killed in action uh, earlier that day. And of course, you know, I, I hear what, what was going on, on on the radio, but no names were, were given or anything like that. And so I just thought, you know, gosh, that sucks. And that's, that's terrible. I feel bad for them and their families and everything. Uh, come to find out that that call was about my brother and, and the other soldier who who was killed. Wow. And so I didn't even know at the time. It, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll take a, that one step further. It had never even crossed my mind that that was a possibility for my brother. It, it just was, that's just something that happens to other people that that's not going to happen to my brother. That's not going to me or him we're going to be fine we're going to go back home we're going to live our lives the way we planned on living them and and that that was just how my mindset was at the time um so a little while after that i, I got a call on the radio from uh, our company commander who was looking specifically for me which given the chain of command that doesn't usually happen you know they, they usually go through the chain of command and and you know talk to your platoon sergeant or whoever you know before uh coming straight to you uh, but that's not what happened and so 
you know, when that happens, it, it's usually you did something really good or really bad. And I didn't do anything particularly extraordinary that day. So I was like, oh, shit, what what did I do wrong? You know, what what did I screw up? I, I'm in trouble, right? And, you know, I, I was rattling my brain and, and I was nervous as hell. But when I when I eventually caught up with him and, and linked up, he, he told me to, uh, to come over, take a knee and take my helmet off, which I'm like, okay, they never tell you to take your helmet off. Like, that's just like, like basic, you know, like something really bad has happened. Like what the hell is going on? And so he told me that, you know, my brother's unit was uh, ambushed and that my brother had gotten hit. And still at this point, I never had considered that my brother could have been killed. And so my, my brain went into big brother mode and tried to figure out logistics of how to get me to wherever he was. So I could be there to, you know, comfort him if he needed, you know, blood or something like that. He could have, you know, give him a blood donation, whatever it was that he needed. I, I wanted to be there for him. Um, and then, you know, my, my CEO told me that he would, he was killed. He, he didn't make it. And so like anyone else, I, I broke down. I was, I was a complete mess. Um, you know, I, I had several soldiers who just kind of like stayed with me for a, a little while, just making sure that I was okay. And I wasn't going to do anything stupid and hurt myself or, or anyone else or, or anything like that. So, um, but the problem with that was, uh, shortly after finding out that my brother was killed about 20 minutes later, uh, our own unit started getting attacked from the same village that we just came out of. Uh, clearly the Afghan army who were, were in the lead clearing these, these, uh, buildings did not do a great job. Um, so we started taking small arms fire and RPG fire from, from, uh, this village. And, um, you know, so I had to put that, my personal issues aside and, kind of stopped grieving in, in that moment. And, and I had to just suck it up and, and get back into the fight. You know, I, I had a squad that I was in charge of and, and I had to be there for them and make sure that they had the leadership that they needed so that nothing happened to them. Uh, I needed to make sure that nothing happened to me because I didn't last thing in the world I wanted was for my parents to get another knock on the door or have my wife or uh, my newborn son at home, you know, grow up without, me, you know, so like that, that was the, the thoughts going through my mind. It's like, no way are they getting another one of us today. Like I, I was going to make damn sure that, that they were not going to uh, get both of us today. Um, and so my, my grief turned to just pure anger. And I, I was just, I, I just hated everybody in that country uh, at, in that moment. And it, it, it was just, it was not a pretty uh, situation for me. And it, it, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, you know, I, I managed to hold it together enough that, you know, I didn't do anything stupid, but, um, you know, God, I, the thought of me just going and just killing all these random Afghans down in this village had definitely crossed my mind. You know, I, I, I didn't do anything, you know, crazy like that, but it, it, it crossed my mind. And, and I was that angry that, that I could have probably convinced myself to do something stupid like that if I didn't have, you know, people back home relying on me and, and soldiers to lead. Yeah, that's another thing we spoke about earlier that the, the public doesn't understand what we go through. In that moment, you were in a world of emotions. You just yeah. lost you lost your brother, and then you're getting attacked by the same, basically the same element that attacked him, just in a different region. And now right. what do you do? Do you go ballistic and take out every person in there? Or like you said, hold it together as much as possible, bring your men home, and then live to fight another day. And that's something no one understands, that emotion or that adrenaline rush, anger rush whatever you want to call it in that moment. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I remember even looking at some of our interpreters who I was friends with 
and looking at them like, what the hell is your problem that that you couldn't be the one who sacrificed your life for your country? You know, and, and we had to have people like my brother come here and get killed. And and I was like, this this is bullshit. Like we, we can't we're the ones who are coming over here and dying and, and this guy's still alive. And and the the craziest thing is like afterwards I felt like such a complete jackass for for feeling that way about the, these people because I mean, they were my friends. Like I, I, I made friends with these guys and like, they didn't do anything wrong. They, it, it's not their fault. Um, and, you know, I, I've since, you know, talked to them and everything and, and, you know, we're all good, but you know, I, I just, just the anger that, that flowed through me at the, that time. And I think everyone understood, you know, what, what was going on and, and everything, but um, it, it was just not a good situation for me. Definitely. It's horrible. And I'm guessing at this point that they fly you to meet up with him at either uh Bagram or something to escort him home or what happened? Yeah. So uh, right after that, that firefight, there was a, a helicopter came, came and landed and, and took me and, and several other people who had been uh, wounded that day. Uh, and we, we flew out and we went to, to Bagram. Uh, and it was actually the same helicopter that I had helped land earlier that day because it had the same general uh, on, on the helicopter. Up. and uh so he was sitting across from me on it was a black hawk so the, if you're familiar with the seats there <laughs> they kind of face each other he was sitting directly across from me he's like aren't you the the sergeant who who i met down in that village and i was like yep yeah, that was me and the two soldiers that that you got a, a call for on the radio uh that one of them was my brother and so he was like he couldn't believe the coincidence uh from from that uh which i i still can't believe it either it's just kind of bizarre you know out of all the you know, thousands of soldiers who were in the country at the time, like that, that I happened to be there for that. But, um, but anyway, so we, we landed in Bagram and, um, uh, I talked to the, the leadership there, our, our brigade uh, command. And I told them that I wanted to escort my brother's body the entire way home. Uh, I wanted to be with him from, you know, leaving Afghanistan through the time that he came home in, in America. And they, they told me that I, I couldn't, they said I, I could escort him as far as Kuwait, uh, that, but then I'd have to continue my way home and we'd have to kind of go separate ways. And, you know, going back to that whole, never leave a fallen soldier. I felt like not only am I leaving a fallen soldier, but I'm leaving my little brother, you know, yeah. with strangers and, uh, that it just tore me up and I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And it, it was, it just, really uh, frustrated me that I, they weren't going to allow me to, to travel the whole way with him. Um, but the brigade commander, he, he told me, you know, what good am I doing for him with staying with him? You know, I'm going to be much more good to my, my parents and my wife, and my, my son, when I eventually make it back home. And so he said, you know, fast track it and get, get home as, as quick as you can. And, and so that's what, what I ended up doing. Um, you know, I, I followed him to uh, Kuwait. We, we managed to get on the same flight uh, to, to get to Kuwait. And uh, from there, uh, I, I continued on my way home. And I think I made it home in, in record time. Like nobody makes it. If you ever traveled from Afghanistan, it's usually a, a pretty lengthy process. But I was home. Let's see. So he died on the 22nd. I think I was home on the 24th. Um, so wow. it was a pretty, pretty quick time period. Like it, it was one flight after another. And I, I just 
got off one, got onto the next. And, and, you know, it's, it's a long way and there obviously layovers and stuff in between, uh, you know, flights, but it, it, it took a little while, but I, I made it home probably about as quick as anyone has, has ever made it home. You know? And that, so. that's gotta be a record, uh, less than, less than a week. That's a, that's a record there. Yeah. <laughs> Usually you gotta take stops North then South then East and West and get there somehow. Hopefully you get right. on the plane and you, you actually, you probably hit everyone right on time. Some, somehow by the grace of God, I guess. Yeah. And I, I think they, they probably knew my circumstance and my, my situation too. And they, they wanted to make sure I got home for, for the funeral and for, for my family and everything like that too. So they, they probably bumped me ahead of, of the line and in, in some of the flights. So, you know, that in a way worked out in my, my favor, but you know, at, at the same time, I, it still didn't sit right with me that, that I couldn't be with him. Um, and, and the other thing that was hard, so when I got to Bagram, uh, I couldn't call home. You know, we're, when you're, you have a military death like that, uh, you, you're on a communications blackout and, and you, nobody can call home. And so I couldn't call my parents. I couldn't call my wife. I couldn't call anybody to talk to them uh, because they, at that point, just based on the time difference, they didn't know whether or not my parents had been notified and, and whether any family back home knew about my, my brother's death. And the last thing they wanted to do is have them find out through a call or a Facebook message or, or something like that. So, so all the communication was, was blacked out for a period of time until, until we figured out that my, my parents had been notified. Um, but it wasn't until I got to Kuwait that I was actually able to, to make a call uh, the following morning uh, to make a call to my, my parents and my wife and, and let them know that I was on my way home, that I was safe and, and everything like that. But it, it was such a, a lonely feeling because, you know, I, I was with other soldiers, but I didn't know any of them. And uh, so it was like, I was, I was in a, a crowded room of, of strangers uh, all the time. And it, and it was a very lonely feeling, especially when all I wanted to do is just talk to, you know, my, my parents or my wife or, or, you know, people like that. Um, and there was nobody that I could talk to. Nobody knew what I was going through. No, you know, there's a, a handful of people who knew, but, um, you know, it, it was no one I could really, you know, have a conversation with or, or whatever. And it, it was just a, a really isolated time. Like I, I, I just felt like I was sitting on an Island by myself almost, you know? Wow. And then every time I went to Bachman, I just got angry all the time because you go from being on the front lines, like you were, and then you see the people in Disney World there just having a great time and acting like it's not even a war going on. And then your right. your situation, it's even it's even compounded because you're going there with a heavy heart, a heavy head, and you see these guys and gals just walking around in shorts and hanging out. And be, it's a cool day here. It's awesome, great. Yeah, no, it's not. It's really not. Well, and I, I was actually like the the opposite way when when we were coming into Afghanistan because Bagram was our first stop in Afghanistan, and then we went to Jalalabad, and then we went to uh, Torkum. Where, where we were stationed for the majority of the deployment. Um, but when we first landed in Bagram, I, I was like, well, if this is what Afghanistan is going to be like, this is not going to be that bad. And uh, then we got to Jalalabad and it was, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't as good as Bagram. So I was like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're out a little ways. And so, yeah, so it's not, it's not that bad. And then we got to our FOB and, you know, that, that kind of changed everything. <laughs> <laughs> my whole outlook changes <laughs> i was like oh crap they they uh sugarcoated this an awful lot <laughs> <laughs> they set you up and then kill you <laughs> yeah. your soul. Well, that's, that's that's the army for you right <laughs> yeah, definitely 
So from this experience, uh, did you have to go back to Afghanistan or did they let you stay home and with your family or how'd that work out? Yeah, so I was able to stay home. Um, uh, at my brother's funeral, the the governor of the state of Connecticut was there and she said that um, she she told our, our family that she was going to make sure that I, I didn't have to go back over there. And and for people who are familiar with the National Guard, they fall under the state command, which uh, the, the governor is a kind of commander in chief of, of the National Guard. And so she was able to, I guess, make that call and make that order that that I didn't go have to go back. So so that was uh, that was good because I, I don't think I was in the right place in, in my mindset to be going back over there. Um, it, it would have taken an even bigger emotional toll on me than than it already did. And I, I don't think I would have been able to, to manage that, uh, you know, being over there. I, I needed to be home. I needed to be uh, with family. And and I knew that if if I did go back over there, it would totally destroy my parents and my, my family, because, you know, they, they've already lost one son and now they're, they're going to be even more worried that they're going to lose another one. Um, and, and so, you know, it was, it was just a really, um, really good, fortunate thing that I didn't have to go back. Um, so. Yeah. I was about to bring up the, the emotional toll on you is one thing, but your mom and dad, that toll would have been compounded because, well, we just lost our youngest son. Now our oldest son's going right back to the same area. Well, um, they wouldn't have slept. They wouldn't have slept for the rest of the entire deployment. No, no. And you, like you said, you would have been in just a mess over there. Probably would have been put in staff because you wouldn't have been useful on the ground anyway. Right. Yeah. And I, I knew that uh, uh, about myself too. I knew that I wasn't going to be very useful over there. I knew my, uh, you know, my my leadership was not going to be what it needed to be uh, anymore. I, I I held it together for that that one firefight as best as I could, um, but you know it it would have taken a lot out of me to to continue uh, pushing forward. Um, not to mention that I I had also injured myself uh, on on that that last mission uh, as we were exiting off the hel- helicopters. I um, you know as we were landing the night before on, on that last mission. Um, the we're, it was nighttime and so we had night vision goggles depth perceptions all screwed up with with night vision and i was given the green light to to go and i was the first one to step off and i'm wearing you know 100 pounds of crap on on myself you know between body armor weapons <laughs> ammo and everything else and and we had our our rucksacks with with uh extra food and water and, and all that kind of stuff so easily over 100 pounds of, of stuff that i was carrying and i stepped off and the helicopter hadn't quite landed yet it was still about three, four feet off the ground and falling down onto uneven rocky terrain. I, I totally busted up my knee. Um, and so it, that was really bothering me. Um, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't run. I couldn't jump or, you know, do any of the, the things that you normally would have done carrying extra weight, like a body armor and, and things like that would not have been something I, I would have been able to do. So I would have been pretty useless if I went back anyways. So another reason why it was a good thing i didn't know <laughs> so hopefully uh that healed hopefully hopefully you didn't let the yeah. army operate on it or anything and uh, you were able to keep your knee and not have it cut off by them <laughs> so this yeah, thing- well you know funny thing is i i went to uh i went to the va to to get it looked at and uh the 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 doctor who was was inspecting it and everything he's like oh yeah it looks like you just kind of kind of strained it uh just take some uh some motrin and stay off it for a couple of weeks and i was like like this is so i ended up 
uh, fortunately, I, I had a uh, civilian job as well, where I still had uh, my own private insurance. And so I went to a civilian doctor to get a second opinion. And he's like, no, your knee is screwed up. You, you need surgery. So, um, so it was, it was like that. And so I, I was like, you know what, I'm not even going to go through the VA and, and deal with that crap anymore. I'm just going to, I'm going to go take care of it on my own. And, and so um, once when I did, uh, it, it put me in a position where my uh, recovery for that would have taken me through the end of my enlistment. Um, if, if I was to, to stay in. And so there, I was, would have been walking on crutches the entire rest of my, my enlistment. And, um, so obviously I was not going to be training with, you know, the, the other infantry soldiers and <laughs> rucking around in the woods or doing any of that kind of stuff. So, um, whenever I would go to, to training after that, it, I felt completely useless. You know, I, I was sitting there watching them go off and, and do all the things that they're supposed to do. And I, I couldn't do anything. I physically couldn't do anything. So that was affecting my mental health as well, because I, I was like this, I just feel so useless uh, going, going into this training and not being able to do anything. So um, I looked into, uh, you know, ways of me possibly getting out of the military early Um I didn't think a medical discharge would be possible because I was going to eventually recover and, and it wasn't like a, you know, a permanent uh, thing. But I also knew that, you know, having lost my brother, that was another consideration. And so that where the title of the book comes from, Surviving Son, uh, there's an army regulation called Surviving Sons and Daughters, which has a provision for uh, discharges for, for soldiers who uh, lost a, a relative the way, the way I did uh, in in combat or, or whatever. So, um, you know, so I, I use that, uh, surviving sons and daughters to get out a little bit early, uh, from, from my enlistment. And, um, you know, that I think ultimately was the right decision. Um, because again, I was going, I was getting, getting paid to go and sit there and not do anything and just feel useless. Uh, I wasn't teaching anyone or showing anyone how to do anything because I, I couldn't do it myself. Um, and you know, it, it would have brought me to the end of my enlistment and, and it would have, I, I wouldn't have really been useful at all in that time period. So, um, you know, I, I figured, you know, step aside, clear, clear the way for, for their uh, junior soldier to, to step up into my, my position and, and take over and, and hopefully they could move on and, and, uh, do the, the job that needs to be done. It's not, I think that's probably the best decision for you and them at that point. Uh, and I guess this is where you started uh, learning about the evil of the transition. Uh, the the mind has a way of playing yeah. tricks on you once you leave the boots and suits behind, the boots and uniform behind, and you left the war. And now a lot of soldiers, a lot of sailors, a lot of servicemen come home. They don't know what to do with their hands at this point. And yeah. it becomes an evil mind that, and the darkness can e easily set in. And that's, I think that's the premise of Drive On. And uh, of course, it's in your book as well. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so and it definitely did. It, it, those uh, those demons kept kept creeping in. Um, uh, when when I put in the paperwork for for my discharge, um, it was one of those things where it wasn't an automatic thing. They had to go through several levels of approval, like any other government nonsense. <laughs> and so I uh, I didn't know exactly when it was going going to get approved. But one night I went to bed, still technically a soldier. Um, the next morning I, I woke up uh, and I had a phone, I got a phone call from my platoon sergeant and he said, paperwork's been approved. You're, you're done. You're out. And so it was like a light switch. 
there was no uh, transition assistance or you know anything like that. It was I went to bed one one night and woke up the next morning and and I was out and it was that quick. Um, all I had left to do was just you know uh, turn in any remaining equipment that I might have had, and and I was done. There was no uh, send offs. There's no no closure really. It was it was literally like a light switch, um, just flipping it off and and uh, you know that affected me in a way that I didn't expect it to because, you know, I had that identity as a soldier for uh, almost six years at that point. And uh, then all of a sudden I don't have that identity and, and it's, it's just poof, it's gone. And, and that, that, that affected me in, in a way that I didn't expect it to um, because then I, I was, I wasn't really satisfied with the job that I had at the time. Uh, I didn't really like that. So I, I couldn't really call myself, you know, whatever it was that I was doing at, the, at that time, you know, I couldn't really call myself anything, you know, I, I couldn't call myself a soldier. I couldn't call myself a, uh, I was barely even a father because I was just a shell of a person there. Like I, 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 I wasn't really the, the best that I could be with that. And so I, I felt like I had no sense of purpose or, or nowhere to belong. I had no identity really. And so it, it, that was difficult for me to, um, to try to reconcile all of that. But in addition, I still had the anger issues that I, I was talking about when, uh, after my brother was killed, uh, I, I just would get angry at just about everything. You know, all the little things would just set me off. And, um, it, it was one of those things where I, I was like, you know, what, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. I just need some time and I'll, I'll suck it up and I'll deal with it. Um, but after a few months went by, I still wasn't getting any better. If anything, I was getting worse. And my wife and I both kind of sat down one night and we we're like, you know what, something has to change. And, um, and I, I, I agreed. And I, I said, you know, what, I'm, I'm going to just go and and get some help. Um, go, go talk to, to somebody. Go. I ended up calling the, the vet center and they, um, they set up a time for me to meet with a counselor and, and we met regularly and, and kind of worked through some of the problems I, I was going through. And, and it was good to just be able to talk about it in, in a safe, comfortable location where I knew it wasn't going to get back to, uh, you know, anybody else outside of those four walls, you know? Um, and, and so it was, it was a good opportunity for me to, uh, release some of that pressure that that had been building up um and and like you said the the drive on podcast uh was born out of uh, a need that i saw in the the veteran community where there are people who were taking their own lives uh, people that i served with took their own lives um they're struggling with addiction and homelessness and and all sorts of of these these kind of issues that there are solutions for and they're way better solutions than however uh, a lot of people are, are dealing with them. You know, there, there's much healthier ways to deal with, um, you know, the PTSD. You don't have to drink yourself to sleep every night, you know, to, to deal with it, um, you know, the way I did. Um, you, you end up in, in this vicious cycle where you just end up hurting yourself and the people around you, and, and that's not helping anything. That's not going to make the PTSD get any better. It's not going to make those bad memories become any less bad, you know? So what I wanted to do with the podcast drive on podcast is to talk to other veterans, talk about their struggles, the things that they went through and, uh, and, and really 
give some hope to the other people who are out there who who might be struggling with their own issues and um just let them know that they're not alone and and that there is a way out that that doesn't involve self-destructive behaviors um and and there's also other organizations out there um there's there's nonprofits and companies who are doing a lot of great work for veterans and they are uh, a lot of times unknown uh people just don't know that these things exist and so i i like to talk to them and highlight those organizations to provide alternatives for people who may not be comfortable with, let's say, the, the VA for counseling or for any other uh, services. There, there's plenty of other services that are out there. Um, and and there's there's no reason that you can't find something to work for you. And so so that's that's what I like to do on, on the podcast, talk to those those kinds of people and provide hope to those who, who need it. That's outstanding. And like you said, that's uh, something that's near and dear to both of our hearts, the, the veteran uh, transition and their fight, the, the fight to get away from the demon, the, the darkness, I like to call it too. And, and as long as I guess guys like yourself and uh, I guess me too, now that I have my, my show as well, as long as we're getting voices out there and stories out there to maybe show them there is a better way. There is another way to do these things. Uh, I think we're all going to, we're all going to come out on the other side a little better. Yeah. And I, I hope that, you know, the, the atmosphere and the, the attitude in the military community starts to change. It, it is starting to change, but for the better uh, with regards to mental health. But, you know, when, when we were in, it was a, a different ball game, you know, it was a suck it up and deal with it kind of, kind of attitude. And, um, you know, that that's not the right way to go. And, and I think, you know, the, the better we are at uh, dealing with these problems, the better soldiers will be the better, uh, you know, uh, spouses and, and parents will, will be for, for our families, uh, just the better people will be overall. And, and I think that that's, that's a win for not only the military community, but for society in general, because I, I think the service members who are coming out of the military have a lot to offer. And, and if we have the best of what they have to offer, then that that's only a good thing. I think. You're definitely right. And, uh, a person that comes in is able to make a community impact, a positive community impact is much better than one that is being a detriment to not just themselves, but their entire family, because they don't know what to do anymore. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why they're home and their friend didn't come home or, or anything like that. And they blame themselves. So getting out of that hole is very hard for a lot of uh, men and women that come home from war and getting them back into being productive members of society is a, is a great thing. Yeah, it is. And and that's uh, the, the goal. We we want to make sure that that people are, you know, living their best life and, and living to the, the best of their abilities. And, and, you know, if we think about the, the people, my brother and, and the thousands of others who, who were lost in these wars, uh, I don't, I don't think you could point to a single one of them who would be like, you know what, you sit home and you sulk and you throw your life away. <laughs> Uh, over over this because that's what I want for you. I don't think there's a single one of them. And, and granted, I don't know all of them, but I, I don't think a single one of them would be like looking down on us saying, yeah, thank God he's, he's pissing his life away, you know? So let's, let's do something to honor their memories and, uh, you know, give, give honor to, to their sacrifice and, 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 live the best life that we can you know they gave us this gift that we're here and uh you know we're able to continue uh, 
working towards a better life. So let's do that. Let's not piss it away. Same. And uh, how do people get in touch with you if they want to get you to be on their show or just speak maybe to a group of other veterans to say, hey, this is a better way of doing things? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, driveonpodcast.com is the website for uh, my podcast. You can find a lot of contact information on there, uh, social media links and all that kind of stuff. Um, for the book, uh, if you're interested in the book, you want to grab a copy of the book, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, Surviving Sun is the name of the book. Uh, it, it's also available on, on my website, survivingsunbook.com. And, and again, contact forms all over the place. I'm, I'm there as well. So you can, you can reach out, get in touch with me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to come on and, and share my story with, with other, other groups, other podcasts, other uh, you know, organizations that it would be beneficial to. So uh, you know, please reach out. Let me know if, if I can be of any help to, to any of your, your listeners uh, and the groups that they work with. Outstanding. If you want to hold up your book there so they can actually see the cover, I see it behind your shoulder there. <laughs> Grab a copy right here. Here we go. So that's that's the book. Um, you know, it looks like that on on all formats on on uh, Amazon, uh, hard hardcover, paperback, and uh, Kindle formats. So uh, for right now, so um, I'm working on the audio book, but that's that's a slower process than than I thought it would be. So um, that that hopefully I'll have that out in a few months, but um, we'll we'll see how that goes. Outstanding, Scott. Uh, thanks for coming on the Misfit Nation. I look forward to continuing this conversation next week with you on your show so we can uh, do this tag team Misfit Nation drive on thing and get the more people helped along the way. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a lot. Awesome. You know how we do this. Thanks for taking some of your time to spend with us on Misfit Nation. Fit Nation. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and share the link as much as possible. If you want to, please become a supporter to help us carry this thing on. We appreciate you. If you know someone that brings that energy, has a great story, is an up-and-comer in any industry of music, in the arts, have them reach out to us on TheMisfitNation.com. We will get back to them within one day and get them on here so they can share their story with the world. As always, till next time, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling, because we are Fit Nation.